Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Oliker, here in the CSIS studio with my co-host, Jeff Mankoff. Good morning or good afternoon or good whatever time of day you're listening to this. For us, it is 5.30 in the afternoon. Um, so in this episode of Russian Roulette, we sat down with Sam Chirrup, senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation and the author most recently of Rethinking the Regional Order in Post-Soviet Europe and Eurasia, co co-authored with Jeremy Shapiro and Alyssa Demu. He is also the author uh, with uh, Timothy Colton of Everyone Loses the Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia. So as perhaps would be expected, we talk to Sam about some of the ideas um, that he and his co-authors put forward in the recent RAND report for how uh, the European current European crisis might be ameliorated, and uh, we talk a little bit about where Ukraine is and is not going with or without that sort of resolution. Let's get started. Welcome to Russian Roulette, Sam. Thanks for having me, Leah. So I thought we'd start off by chatting about uh, what I think is your most recent RAND report, um, co-authored with uh, a few other folks, um, titled Rethinking the Regional Order in Post-Soviet Europe and Eurasia, where you lay out a way to get us out of the horrible, horrible mess that is Russian-Western relations. Uh, do you want to tell us about uh, your solution to all of the problems of <laughs> <laughs> the modern world? Well, we weren't quite that ambitious, no. I don't think. Um, Come on, the, you're selling yourself short. <laughs> the, uh, the, the premise of it was that basically the um, broader relationship broke down as a result of essentially what amounted to geopolitical conflict over the states in between Russia and the West, um, namely uh, Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, uh, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and the sort of uh, contestation over the regional order in that part of the world. And we tried to think about alternatives that might be acceptable to all parties, given that the current state is detrimental to the states of the region and clearly is uh, doing damage uh, well, and obviously, uh, arguably set the whole broader Russia-West relationship off the, off the rails. And? So, yeah. So what's the, the takeaway? Um, so we outline a few steps about uh, how we might get away from the um, current uh, negative sum dynamic that we are currently observing um, and take steps towards um, basically providing alternative economic integration, regional security, and um, conflict uh, mitigation mechanisms that might be acceptable to all parties um, and also a negotiating mechanism about how we might get there. Um, starting with a informal sort of three plus one Russia EU US plus the chairman and office of the OSCE and uh, broadening it out from there, um, beginning informally, um, and then we also sort of go through a num addressing a number of reasons why people say this won't work, um, and sort of anticipating some of the the usual counter arguments. So you are proposing a new security order for Europe. We are proposing a new security order for a part of Europe that has no security order right now. All right. And what would that look like? What would a collaborative security mechanism or economic order for these countries look like? So the principles, uh, and we're trying to get more in depth into what the details of it in uh, future stages of the same project, but the principles of it on the economic side would be 
multi-directional economic integration, in other words, sort of the opposite of what we have today, where um, on the one hand, the Eurasian Economic Union, on the other hand, uh, the European Union's deep and comprehensive free trade agreement are offering mutually incompatible uh, and thus unidirectional economic integration. On the security side, um, commit multilateral uh, security commitments, and uh, that produce not only um, a uh, withdrawal from areas that are uh, currently not subject to territorial dispute, um, but also multilateral assurances um, of about future use of force or lack thereof, um, commitments to consult about the, any potential changes to the uh, regional order in the future, and a number of other similar measures that you know one could imagine there being some degree of mutual uh, acceptance of. Um, and the point is that at the moment, these countries are actually don't have uh, attractive options that allow them to um, n not be subject to the kind of insecurity and um, lack of, uh, well, and, and the disruption of trade ties and so on that they're currently experiencing. And in some cases, as in Ukraine, you know, a war that has killed over 10,000 people. So, but to a large extent, what you're proposing is uh, a, freezing, a freezing of the in-between status, right? The idea is that is to transform what it means to be in between from a, uh, a liability as it is now to some sort of an asset whereby it's not... Whereby one prefers to be Ukraine to, say, being <laughs> France? Well, I wouldn't quite go that far. Yeah. But where, <laughs> I where, didn't think so. Whereby one prefers to have uh, the kind of arrangements that we're talking about to the status quo, right? I mean, we're not talking about providing you know, transforming Ukraine into France, we're talking about uh, improving what is a terrible situation into something more stable, uh, more secure, and one that allows for potentially more prosperity. I mean, let's talk about the objections. I mean, I think Oli was hinting at one of the, the big objections to something like this is that people in these countries themselves may have other ideas about what their preferences are. How do you deal with that problem? So um, we directly tested that proposition by uh, commissioning new original polling data in five of the six in-between countries, so everyone but Azerbaijan. Um, and we posed questions in a different way than these are usually posed about people's preferences regarding um, regional security arrangements and economic integration. And specifically, we usually the question is asked, like, do you, Moldovan, Ukrainian, prefer the EU or membership or EU membership versus Eurasian Economic Union membership? Or do you prefer NATO uh, versus the Collective Security Treaty Organization? And what we did was provide a third option, which is equally close relations with both, and actually offered the respondents the opportunity to volunteer the response of not have any relations with any union. Um, and what was striking is that in four of these five countries, there were uh, majorities um, who supported um, this sort of third way. Um, Ukraine was the exception there, although there was a significant, um, you know, we're talking between 30 and 40 percent, I believe, uh, support in that context too. And one would assume that if the war were to end, that it might be a little bit different. And of course, that doesn't take into account uh, areas where we couldn't poll, which are not under government control at the moment. So um, we did find that there is uh, a reservoir of support in these places for alternatives that could um, that would be different than what is nominally currently on offer. And of course, one needs to underscore that actually 
the options which we talk about, that is membership in your Atlantic institutions, aren't actually on the table today. So, Right. I mean, I think one of, the, one of my usual uh, counters to the argument that countries get to choose their own security alliances is the alliances also have to choose the countries. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the principle of freedom of choice applies to members of existing institutions as much as it does to non-members. In other right. words, Georgia doesn't get to choose what American foreign policy is regarding Georgian membership in NATO. And just as with any NATO ally, the U.S. can either support that or not. Or just um, And that does get to a broader point about the principle, which is another objection mm-hmm. that one often hears that this is about that, that countries do have this it's right. A of sovereignty. I'm sorry? It's a matter of sovereignty. Yes. Well, I w- the, the argument is usually a little bit more specific that that uh, that they have the right to choose. Well, that they have the right to be a member of whatever organization they would like to be. And in fact, the uh, language on that, which dates from the Helsinki Final Act, is is much more abstract. It's about the right to be a party or not be a party to organizations, generally speaking, and uh, does not say that any country has a particular right to be a member of any particular organization. Um, the point is that you know we're not. No country has the right to dictate to existing uh, unions or alliances what uh, states um, should be members of it. What I think has gotten NATO and the EU in trouble is, uh, particularly NATO, is the commitment to this principle of the open door. Hmm. Um, Although interestingly, and we went back to the history here too, the open door was never meant to be this kind of never-ending process, which it has now been construed as. In the very beginning, there were you know, and including from the U.S. Congress, strong statements about future consideration of candidates being done on a case-by-case basis and whether it's in the interest of the alliance or not. And that was also what was stated in the original document laying out the terms for NATO enlargement. Um, but today we've gotten ourselves wrapped around the axle with this and and it sort of has been read as, you know, uh, we have the – we are obliged – to provide membership perspectives to those countries that ask for it's it. It's the video game model, right? You, if you attain level one, you get to go on to, without losing too many lives. You go on to level two and then level three <laughs> and then level four. And the final level is NATO membership. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I look at it slightly differently, which is that the original perspective on enlargement may have been somewhat limited and that has evolved over time. But again, NATO as an organization of sovereign countries has the the right to make that determination. Now, whether that determination is in its interest or not is a separate question. Um, But, you know, whether or not that was the original intention, I think, you know, we are at a place now where NATO collectively and largely at the instigation of the U.S. has made this determination that this kind of wide open door, or not wide open because not a lot of countries are coming through it, but this principle of the open door is something that is worth defending as a principle. Right. But um, the que- the reason I go back to the original way in which the open door was construed, and it was, you know, we're talking about language from a summit statement in 1997, Madrid, I believe, um, and uh, is that that is nominally where the principle comes from. And it's just that the principle is not, is being construed in a way that it wasn't originally intended and suggesting a degree of automaticity about uh, membership processes, which doesn't really exist. Now, all this would be different if there were actually a um, uh, consensus within the alliance on on granting a membership perspective to any of the countries Mm -hmm. under consideration, which isn't the case. And there's no plausible way in which that would change. 
The uh, where I think we've gotten into particular problem is stemming from the Budapest Declaration, the Bucharest Bucharest, Bucharest. Bucharest. I messed yeah. that up Bucharest Declaration of two thousand eight. Um, whereby uh, there was this um, compromised language that ended up committing NATO to the idea that Ukraine and Georgia, quote unquote, will, will. become members of NATO at right. some unspecified date in the future. But I think this is why the, this is where the consensus in NATO is, because you don't have agreement on short-term enlargement, but you also don't have agreement on the principle that, or the idea that there's not going to be future enlargement. So this is kind of a way of threading the needle. Right, which I think leaves particularly Ukraine with the worst of all worlds, which is that the the threat of future enlargement, I think, looms large mm -hmm. in Russian threat perceptions and thus uh, affecting their actions. But Ukraine is, gets Doesn't no get security, any security guarantees. Right, so the worst right. of all worlds. Um, I'm realistic about the prospect that you're not going to get a like rollback of a over decade old um, summit statement uh, commitment made there, but the question is the 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 argument we make is that rather than think about taking things off the table, is that you put something new on the table, an option for a country like Ukraine or Georgia that is more attractive than this never ending accession process, which um, you know at some point someone's going to call the bluff about, right? I mean. It can't go on forever. I mean, it will go on forever. It, it, in a way, it, it's but, been uh, going on for a yeah. while. <laughs> but uh, that that this sort of third way would would offer more concrete benefits both to elites and publics, and that it could thus be more attractive. So, do you, in the sense that you you have this proposal out there, do you see? The appetite among policymakers for this uh, idea more in the United States, more in Europe, more in Russia? Who do you think you might expect to run with this? So, uh, and the in between realistic, states themselves? Being realistic, uh, I, I, you know, at the, in the current political climate, it's impossible to imagine um, this moving very far at the moment. And we sort of think about this as creation of an alternative intellectual framework. At the moment, you know, we have the idea of enlargement of your Atlantic institutions, and then we have, on the other hand, this sort of void. Um, and so having a credible alternative, even if it is just an intellectual framework. Eurasian Economic Union, what do you mean? <laughs> right. And so that is also not a credible <laughs> uh, intellectual framework in the sense that further enlargement of Russia-led institutions to these countries mm -hmm. is not credible either. So um, I think that's valuable, that is creation of a an idea at least mm -hmm. that is concrete and has some substance to it um, in itself is important. That having been said, it does, I, you know, and I hear, you hear this from European officials and uh, you see this in the speeches of European leaders that they, uh, particularly Western European leaders, are, are looking for ideas on this subject in a way that I don't think you hear much in Washington in terms of demand and mm -hmm. uh, certainly not now. Yes. Um, and, you know, interestingly, in uh, one of the places where we did a rollout event for the that report was Belarus, where there is a lot of um, mm -hmm. kind of receptivity to. Mm -hmm. uh, so here's a question. Could um, could a deal of the sort that you propose or a set of deals of the sort you propose be struck without the United States being particularly involved? Seems to me highly unlikely, uh, in part because of Russian threat perceptions, right? I mean, ultimately, mm -hmm. that's what we're what they're concerned about, we, the U.S., uh, and in part because um, given our ability to affect our partners' policies on these issues, if there's something that the U.S. doesn't like, we're probably going to stick a wrench in the uh, 
uh, you know, spokes or something, uh, if 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 that is in fact the case. So it's hard for me to imagine that under you know all things being equal or the you know imagining the current circumstances, relatively speaking, projecting out. And I don't know in a five year perspective. However, in the long term, I don't know, right? I mean, if if it's just the U.S. that's standing in the way of this at the moment, you know, the Russians are doing us a favor, and that. Their act- actions make uh, any potential divergence between Europe and the U.S. look like peanuts compared to, um, you know, what they're up to. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of fissures in the transatlantic alliance, but I think the shared perception of Russia as a threat and a problem has helped paper over some of those. Fissures I would one hundred percent agree. Um, Russia does keep bringing people together. It does. <laughs> Like us three. (laughs) (laughs) It brings me together with all sorts of people all the time. (laughs) I was going to say that this sounds in some ways like what the original vision for the OSCE was. And I wonder if you had some thoughts about what's different in your proposal and maybe what lessons can be learned from the failure of the OSCE to develop into something that's more effective at bridging these these gaps. So – there's some truth to that. Um, what I would say is two things. First of all, the OSCE has evolved into a 57, 56, I can't remember exactly now, um, member organization where uh, every participating state has a veto over everything. And it's become very unwieldy as a result. A lot of bilateral problems are sort of imported into uh, um, discussions of general matters. And also, and perhaps more importantly, because it's become this um, organization that is perceived as being quite ineffective, there's zero political buy-in and political uh, political capital invested in the OSCE. I mean, probably three people in capitals are aware of the fact that there's something called a structured dialogue ongoing <laughs> on European security in the OSCE context. Um, because, you know, I'm sure those three people are the ones reading the cables coming back from Vienna. Um, and at this point, you know, we've, we've, it's an organization that uh, is, is continuing to suffer as a result of sort of atrophying of political uh, involvement in it. I mean, if we can't imagine today an actual OSCE summit, right? Um, but if you look back now 20 years, that was where – Yeah. Um, so I think the lesson that we took away from that is that you can't start uh, at the OSCE – region-wide level, that you have to begin informally with the key players and gradually increase the circle until um, at some point in a formal negotiation. Of course, everyone who's affected by it is at the table. Um, but starting with everyone is a guaranteed recipe for the Corfu process, <laughs> um, which, as everyone knows, has become the poster child for pointless discussions on the European security order that lead nowhere. I think that was the goal of the Corfu process, at least in the West. Right. And that's, uh, you know, this cor- the OSCE is where um, people send initiatives in order to kill them off, right? right? And that tells and you something. And that's useful in its own way. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess it does play. But it's sad, too, because it is a, a unique organization, and um, which has now sort of adopted a different role in the context of the Ukraine crisis and become much more operational, which is, you know, also good, I suppose. So let's uh, let's talk about Ukraine. You've also written the book on Ukraine. Do you see the solution being implemented before or after or as a mechanism towards the resolution of the Ukraine crisis? So I would say that any uh, settlement of the Ukraine crisis that does not come in the context of a broader understanding on the regional order in 
The in-between region is likely to be the equivalent of sort of a temporary ceasefire in the broader war, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, over um, that order. But if you have the temporary ceasefire, you can then figure things out, right? It that is space. true. So it does create, it could create space, but it could mean that we have the temporary ceasefire followed by an escalation. If you don't create, yes. this, if you right. don't actually take do advantage with the of space, it. Yes. So it's sort of this way, which one of these is more likely to happen in the short to medium term? Well, the chicken, which yeah, comes first? Yeah, the chicken and the egg. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, so neither, I guess, is the short answer. Mm. And in part because of the chicken and egg problem, right? I mean, we've, we're in a political situation in large part because of Russia's own actions where the broader discussion on these you know regional order issues is almost you know impossible politically uh, on the other hand it's highly unlikely that russia's you know going to make the kind of concessions that uh, would allow for a really dramatic um, shift in terms of their approach to the ukraine uh, settlement process, uh, barring that broader conversation. So, I mean, you know, it's hard to know how you get out of that. I mean, one practical thing that we suggest is that, you know, you can begin – we've been treating discussions of these regional order issues as a gift for Russian implementation of uh, the Minsk agreement concretely. And I think that has not gotten us anywhere. Mm. Uh, and generally speaking, it's not a good idea to treat um, – uh, discussions as a, a gift or diplomacy or engagement as some sort of reward because um, that sets you up for uh, eventually having to climb down for that from that position when you want it to ma- engage on that it makes issue. it hard right. to talk yeah, yeah. And it all, yeah and it also means that when you have problems your first response is to not actually try and talk and solve them right which seems because that would be counterproductive. A gift. yeah yes. <laughs> this is a much bigger pathology in, in American foreign policy but that's true it goes beyond Russia um, but it uh, and and it's also in this case not just about U.S. foreign policy, right? It was on European allies yeah. as well. But I think gradually we're seeing, and you, even if you look at the concrete numbers of, um, you know, intergovernmental engagement between Russia and Western European countries, I mean, the I'm not sure that the sort of consolidated position on diplomatic isolation or freezing out of Russia is really lasting de facto. Yeah. Well, I, I think this is an example of maybe the United States bringing people together or at least <laughs> uncertainty about the United States. Bringing, uh, Europeans, bringing the Europeans and the Russians together. Yes. Balancing and bedwagoning. Yeah. Although, uh, you know, changes in European politics have, are also uh, – and, you know, that, that does – so one uh, has to ask from our position in the West or in the U.S. is is time on our side. Can we hold this line forever? Will we be able to, you know, maintain Ukraine with this conflict ongoing? Are we content with frozen conflicts throughout the region? Are we content to keep sort of fighting a war for influence with Russia and all of these countries? Do we think we'll win that over the long term? Are we trying to maintain Ukraine? Well, um, we're certain financially, for sure. and apparently now with uh, significant um, military assistance. It's not that significant. significant. More significant than it used to be. Not in an operational sense. <laughs> Fair enough. But um, uh, the point being that, you know, if, if the U.S. significant were to... symbolism, we're, ma- we're supporting Ukraine with significant symbolism. If, no, I mean, don't. <laughs> stuff that might have made a difference during the hot phase of the conflict. Not even. In a limited sense. Probably not. Mm-hmm. So I think without even getting into that, the bigger uh, element of leverage and assistance in, the, in that context is on the macrofinancial level, right? Where if you if the U.S. were to stop supporting 
uh, IMF loan disbursements. But Ukraine's in trouble with that anyway. They are. But uh, the IMF They're still is, getting the money. They, so far. Summer. For now. Yeah. Well, they haven't gotten any this year. And yeah. the question is no. And so they also want to get a new facility arranged. Um, you know, every single IMF program in Ukraine has failed. Um, since independence. Yes. Uh, and the reason we that the IMF keeps giving it new programs to Ukraine is that there's political support among its executive board right. for doing so. And uh, and also, you know, the U.S. granted, I think, $3 billion in uh, loan guarantees, which mm-hmm. is not trivial. Um, so I mean to say that, uh, yes, I think to a certain extent, uh, Ukraine is relatively still somewhat somewhat dependent on, on Western support for maintaining... Uh, the status quo. Question is how long that can last. What do we think happens if Western support deteriorates? Absent, Russians continue behaving like Russians. Ukrainians continue behaving like Ukrainians. But Ukraine fatigue sets in. Failure of reforms frustrates everybody. So if you change this variable, yeah, here holding everything else steady. What do we think happens? So um, just to address the likelihood of that, I don't see it as very likely precisely because the Russians are going to keep behaving like the Russians. So as long as the Russians do that, then, you know, regardless of how the right. Ukrainians well, the Russians, behave. The Russians pre- I mean, the Russians create a certain amount of support for Ukraine just by maintaining pressure on Ukraine. Yes. The Ukrainians counter it to some extent by failing to implement a reform <laughs> agenda. Correct. So, uh, so uh, I, there is, it's not totally implausible that this over time will, and given all the other problems, particularly the Europeans face and our interesting foreign policy these days, um, <laughs> you know, one could imagine that changing. How much would it? So the question is, if the bottom falls out in Western support, what what actually yeah. changes? Um, so thought exercise. So uh, the the real question for me that's quite interesting is what? How does the Ukrainian elite behave at the sort of moment of um, entropy? Right. Um, Where do they go? Well, do they save the country or um, now? Uh, Historically, the, we know where they go. Well, yeah. they we've bailed them but, out. I was going to say, but what happens to them if they, you know, make the wrong from the perspective of their own population choice? What do you mean? Well, I mean, if they decide to save themselves and that's perceived as selling the country out. I mean, Ukraine has had a history of. Yes. Oh, there's that too. Yes. Um, although who knows uh, how weary the population will be at that point. I mean, triggers for popular unrest are very, um, are, you know. With Ukrainians go Poroshenko is like half as popular as Yanukovych was when he was overthrown, right? I mean, the the it seems like the, the materials, the Ukraine is like a combustible but situation. For di- but for different reasons, right? Right. But people's frustration with Poroshenko is different from people's yeah. anger at Yanukovych. Uh it certainly became so after the Maidan situation right. started spinning out of control. But just getting back to this question of elite behavior, I mean, one thing that we, we that this is true of the broader post-Soviet region to a certain extent, Russia as well. But like we, this is true of the Ukrainian elite for sure, which is that like they have, you know, Poroshenko has apparently a villa in Spain. And accounts in don't various, you? Well, Who doesn't? <laughs> I'm just saying I'm, I'm he has an, he wrong. has a an exit strategy. Yes, mm-hmm. like unlike his country. Yeah, right. Um, so if things go unless bad, Spain extradites him, right? right. <laughs> well, um, well, you know, and and so should things evolve? But in this such I a way, think allows right? for uh, um, 
a degree of brinksmanship about their own country's fate that they might not otherwise be undertaking if they actually mm. had to own the consequences yeah, of well, it. Well, I think, right, it's a, it's a hedging strategy. I mean, I think this is what's undermined reform in a lot of these countries is that the, the people responsible for implementing reform aren't convinced reform will work. Therefore, they hedge against the failure of, Ukraine, uh, of reform with various exit yeah, strategies well, not only, for themselves. Yeah, well, not only that, but reform might undermine their own individual interests. And, and well, interests. well, I mean, I think that well, that's self-perpetuating, right? Because once you start hedging against the failure of reform, you've created all sorts of interests uh, that actually push you in the direction of undermining reform. But the I think... And, you know, the other point is that people tell them to reform in order to, like, improve their country's lot. And mm -hmm. but, you know, that rents, doesn't help them. Yeah. Right. Like if, if they're still getting their rents and they can always, you know, escape to the villa in Spain, why would you do something that would complicate your life? Right. Um, and this this does connect to this broader in between yeah, question, because the way that dynamic developed, of course, is that we, you know, on both sides, Russia and the West, were willing to turn a blind eye to the, their behavior over time in order to subsidize political loyalty. And I think we're, to a certain extent, reaping what we sowed. I mean, you know, creating these external dependencies has led to elites becoming sort of detached from the fate of their own countries. Yeah, well, or we didn't have the leverage to do a whole lot about it, or we didn't assign it a high enough priority. But we do this everywhere, yeah. right? This isn't unique to this region. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's just that this region happens to have Russia and happens to be in this. This region happens to be the one we're talking about yeah. right now. Well, but it, it happens it, to be the subject of this geopolitical struggle in right, a way that this right. sort of thing in you know Latin America is not. But Afghanistan is another mm -hmm. example where the elites have pretty much the same strategy. Right. But there's no alternative patron there, really, yeah. um, to the same extent, uh, and that. And they're still hedging against reform. Well, interestingly, that is true now of Ukraine, right? I mean, the one would have thought that, yeah, that the no. way that the Ukrainian elite escaped um, pressure to reform before 2014, which was, you know, alternatively going from Russia mm -hmm. to the West mm -hmm. and saying, "If you don't, you know, pay right. me off, I'll go to that guy," that argument doesn't apply anymore um, yet. You know, well, now they've now they now the argument basically is that we're too politically important for you, the West, to allow mm, us to you fail. You can't allow us right, to and that's uh, that's a dangerous argument yes. to make. Well, to be, so to far it's fail. working. Yeah, and you know, frankly, I think that they've that calculus has so far proven correct, right? I don't know that it's proven correct that it's true that they're too important to fail. I think they've. They've convinced us. They've convinced to a enough extent. people that yeah. it might mm -hmm. be true, and the costs are mm -hmm. low enough in supporting them, and there are enough right. benefits in maintaining the support yeah. for those who want a way to counter right. Russia. Th this is the path of least resistance. Yeah, yeah. I, that's but yeah. I mean, these are variations on the same idea. Yeah. Okay, so we've been talking about the in betweens and your strategy for the in betweens, um, but the in betweens are part of a broader region. And Russia has been unhappy with the security order for the uh, for Europe as a whole for the last uh, generation or so. <laughs> yeah, the last three decades. Do you think there is, with or without? I mean, I guess two questions: with with a strategy like this, or some other strategy for the in betweens, or without it, is there a prospect for a broader discussion of European security, and what might that involve? Is solving the in betweens enough to make Russia feel more secure? or other things necessary? So um, even though we contend in the report that, you know, since this is, was the where the problem really went off or the, the whole relationship went off the rails, addressing it 
will is part of the necessary equation to getting us back to a more stable place. I mean, so much water has passed under the bridge in the interim, like six months since we wrote it, that or originally started writing it, that uh, that it's uh, perhaps a tougher sell now. But uh, to answer your question, so the key for me on this score is whether, you know, nobody uh, really on either side was particularly thrilled with the situation before 2014. But it kind of worked, like begrudgingly. I mean, you know, there was a Russia-NATO relationship. It actually did stuff, like from counter-IED work to training, you know, uh, counter-narcotics police for Afghanistan or whatever. And discussions on personnel system reforms in Russia. Right. Um, So there was sort of a practical element there. And, you know, Russia, like, was not particularly thrilled with the broader situation, but... uh, Neither was the West. Right, exactly. Neither side. Um, And, you know, there were biannual, I mean, twice annually um, EU-Russia summits at the uh, presidential level, um, you know, an extensive sectoral dialogue with Russia and the EU. So there were, you know, things were happening and it wasn't, I I didn't think it was necessarily leading to some sort of new, uh, dramatically different security environment, but it was so different from what we have today, right? And so... One would think that well, that suggests to me at least that you could that the in-betweens get us back to a place where we could have more stability. I don't think we can even we can think about going back to actual practical cooperation at this point or even if there were to be more stability. Mm-hmm. But that's clearly the first step. Mm-hmm. What's the second step? Beyond <laughs> that, you know, so we have to um, I, I think that. Part of the answer to the in-between question could offer broader options for the future. So we're not going to revise current membership of current institutions. In fact, one of the elements of our proposal is that all sides commit not to undermine the current membership of current institutions, as they are both alleged to be doing, the Russia, the Russians in terms of current NATO and EU members and trying to undermine support for them, and the West in terms of trying to you know, pry away Belarus or something like that, which, you know, Are sometimes we happens. Uh, well, we uh, make Sweden, ca- we make Poland. Um, efforts. I mean, uh, luck- luckily for everybody, Belarus doesn't actually want to be pried away. Certainly we don't <laughs> recognize um, the legitimacy of Russia-led regional institutions. Um, and the EU as a policy does not recognize mm. the legitimacy of the Eurasian Economic Union, which does suggest that it doesn't really take it seriously and therefore, you know, questions uh, or it. that it takes it very seriously. Right. Well, I, I think it's more the former. But yeah. 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 So but my, my point is that um, we want we're, we're, those institutions are not, you know, are unlikely to go away in their current membership. And we should get everyone to not try to undermine the current membership. But then offering this third way um, potentially allows if it's mutually acceptable to all parties, allows for potential future defections to not be as destabilizing as they would be now. Um, so you could imagine, I don't know, a government coming to power in Bulgaria, for example, I don't just to take a, not to pick on Bulgaria, but, uh, uh, that wants to exit current institutions. And if it had a sort of on the shelf option that wouldn't alienate, uh, the vast majority of, um, its current allies, it might be a little bit smoother. I mean, I'm, that, that seems like Turkey. far-fetched. Turkey, Turkey might be well, that's Turkey. It's hard to imagine a well, way that Turkey the, the, exits that isn't destabilizing. Well, right, but that's a, a different issue. It, if it had a third way that it could, 
you know. Yeah, I think Turkey exiting doesn't mean it transfers its allegiance to the other side. It just sort of exits. But that's right. So um, it, it, presumably, if there's a if there are a set of security arrangements that both NATO member states and Russia have said are okay with them. It's less destabilizing under those circumstances. I think those, you know, we're in an era where um, the voluntary departure from these kinds of institutions, perhaps on both sides, might be, you know, it's already happening in certain cases, um, Britain. Uh, but uh, that's part of it. And but on the broader Is picture, Britain going to be an in-between state. <laughs> well, it's becoming one to a certain extent. It's becoming. I, I, think I don't know what it's. It's becoming. not in between, Physically, right? It's off to the side. Yeah. It's no, an off but, to the side uh, state. Yes, I mean, and you know, we. Uh, the the better definition of in between that I think we came to at the end was that you know uh, countries that are neither you know uh, organic part of either the West or Russia but are affected by the conflict between them. So Sweden, Finland. So jo- mm, I would put Sweden and Finland as part of the West, and you know. So the Georgians are fairly insistent that geography. Not all Georgians, of course. Hashtag, but many Georgians are insistent that geography aside, they are European. You also hear that in Ukraine. So this notion that countries are organically part of a block would be contested by people in those countries. Organically part of a block. Organically Eastern or Western, right? Yeah. Okay. So, but I just meant to say what the definition of uh, how to define it, um, because, for example, um, is Armenia or Belarus actually really in between? They are members. What, what what makes them different um, from a Russian perspective, uh, you know, than Latvia or Hungary? I mean, both all three or four countries are members of uh, security alliances and economic integration or you know entities. I think that there's an issue here of culture and of history and of identity, and of course, those are contested things within all of these countries, and that's part of what's at issue here. Is you have countries that have been in between or populations that have been in between for a lot of their history and having in some cases only been independent for the last couple of decades are still struggling with this issue of where do they fit in this mosaic. And it's changing. And it's changing, right. It's a very dynamic and I, process. And the cultures are changing. Sure. But a lot of countries in Europe that are part of security alliances and economic integration entities are have historically been in between a lot of different empires. Right. And right. Exactly. But, but by so, choosing to go with these organizations, they're in effect making a choice about how they see their identity, at least in... Or to seek, yes, or to seek from these organizations. A, a, putting aside the broader cultural questions, which I admit are, are certainly present, uh, if we're just asking from a practical policy perspective, how do we define this term? It's not just that these six countries are physically located between, you know, the, on the one hand, Russia, and on the other hand, members of Euro-Atlantic institutions. It's also that the conflict between Russia and the West has an impact upon them, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's sort of what I'm getting at. But to, to answer your question about European security, you know, like I would like to get us back to uh, the unhappy but functional place of pre-2014. And I think that is probably too much to ask. But it does not require a massive new security mm. architecture that would but fundamentally you, but alter. But you don't want to get us there because the functional unhappy place of 2014 was what gave us 2014. Pre-2014, no. I would argue that that's not in fact the case. What, ga- what got us to 2014 was the contest over the lands in between, right? And so, you know. But that was part of the 
of the status quo, right? It, was it continuing it back and forth? It didn't define Russia's relationship with either the EU or NATO institutionally. It, it, uh, the nature of... To some degree. No, I mean to say that there was an EU-Russia... EU, uh, EU-Russia relationship and NATO-Russia relationship that operated despite the fact that there were nominal Mm -hmm. plans for integrating. No, I understand what you mean. But what you're trying to do is create a kinder, better 2013, a 2013 Mm -hmm. that that isn't going to get to 2014. A 2013 that has the added um, stabilizing element of consensus regarding the uh, regional order in the in-between region, right, which I think does make the 2013 unhappiness sustainable and stable in a way that it wasn't, as you know. Then it, it wouldn't be – it's a different kind of unhappiness. It's sort of a level of unhappiness equivalent to where we were in 2013, but it's a different kind of unhappiness because this element is sort of removed from the equation. Right. So the potential for unhappiness to turn into like – Violence. Over yes. <laughs> Machine gun <laughs> fire, right? Tanks. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, so just grumpiness would be like a massive improvement. Um, I'd settle for just grumpiness right now. Yeah, I, th- I think we have consensus <laughs> on our preference for grumpiness over um, heavy, arti- heavy artillery. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So on on that uh, on that cheerful, positive. Yeah, it's and, about as good as you can get for positive notes on uh, you know, Russia related yeah. issues. Russia, European security. Yeah. We'll close there. Sam, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Elena and Jeff. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks for joining us. That's our show for today. Uh, There's a link to Sam's bio in the show notes. And also to his most recent report and to his book. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. And please do leave us a rating and or a review. If you're not an iTunes user, you can check out the podcast uh, and subscribe via Google Play or on SoundCloud. And if you like the podcast, uh, don't just leave us a rating or review. Tell people what a wonderful, exciting, informative, entertaining, and really just generally joy-bringing podcast this is. And also, uh, when you're telling them that, uh, you can encourage them to send us mailbag questions. Not until they've listened to us. And you can send us mailbag questions, too. In fact, we encourage you to send us mailbag questions. Send them to rep at csis.org with the words Russian roulette in the subject line. And we look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, uh, if you're a Twitter user, you can follow the program on Twitter. It's at CSIS Russia. And you can follow Jeff and me on Twitter. I'm at Olya Oliker, and Jeff is at Dr. J. Mankoff. And finally, of course, big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Kimberly Schuster, and the whole CSIS external relations and ILAP team. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. Bye.